So let's turn to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. We finished our study on, on the Holy Spirit and began our new journey this morning in the book of John. Now, some people wonder, why are we have four stories of the life of Jesus? Why not just have one? But what we must consider is that the Gospels are not mere historical narratives. Each of them are like a letter written to teach us something specific about Jesus. If you're typing an email to someone or writing a letter to someone, you have intent, you have purpose. And so it's the same for each of the gospel writers. They each have a unique intent and purpose. So what did John want to specifically teach us about Jesus? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand a little bit about who he is first. John was one of the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus but he was originally a fisherman with his father and his older brother James. And John was one of the first people to follow Jesus. Uh, He and his brother James had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder. We only have a few recorded words of John in the other Gospels, but it, it tells us why they had this nickname. The first recorded words that we have is when John and his brother James ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans who denied them entry into their village. They go into the restaurant and they say, we don't serve your kind here. And you turn to Jesus and go, okay, you want us to burn the whole place down, everybody in it? It's our John. The second time, for sure we know he's speaking, is when John comes to Jesus and tells him, me and some of the other disciples, he tells Jesus because he thinks Jesus is going to be happy with him. He says, me and some of the other disciples, we tried to stop a guy from casting out demons in your name because he's not one of us. On both occasions, Jesus rebuked John. John was also part of the inner three, the inner circle that Jesus rarely left alone. I think sometimes we over-dramatize that and we think to ourselves, well, these were the spiritual guys, when in reality it probably was more like this. This is something that requires my special attention, gentlemen. I'm going to leave you out here. On second thought, you three with me. Can't leave you alone. Son of thunder indeed. <laughs> and yet, this fiery guy who couldn't be left alone becomes known to us as John the Beloved. He will refer to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when he was pastor of the church at Ephesus, he was known as the apostle of love. So how did a guy go from being a son of thunder to the apostle of love? Well, he met Jesus who loved him despite his thunder. Now, early tradition tells us that John wrote his gospel at the request of friends uh, at the church there in Ephesus that he pastored at because they felt there was a need to combat the errors that were springing up in the church at the close of the first century. A Hellenistic philosophy on one hand and Gnostic heresy on the other hand had brought many subtle errors into the minds of Christians during that time period. And both of those false teachings attacked the deity of Christ, either making Jesus out to be a mere man or a lesser deity than God the Father. And when you consider the fact that when John writes his gospel, uh, Paul has already been home with the Lord for 20 years. He was executed by the Roman government 20 years prior to this. Same with Peter. John is somewhere between 80 and 90 years old at this point, and as such, he's the only living eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I love what A.B. Simpson says. 
There was but one voice that could give an authoritative answer to all these opinions about Jesus out there. And he was still alive as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. It was John. And so, John's five books that he writes, they become the, the last messages of the Holy Spirit to the church, that he breathed to the church. Now, this first book that John writes, the gospel, John tells us what his goal was in writing this final account of Jesus' life. So let's turn to John chapter 20, verses 30, and look at verses 30 and 31. We don't have to wonder why he wrote this letter. He tells us why he wrote it. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John gives this little author's note. He gives us a few of these author's notes throughout his gospel. But at the end here, he tells us why he wrote his gospel. He says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Jesus did a ton of other things I didn't include in this book. Saw them all. But I didn't include them all. But these are written, the ones I put here, they're written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means seeing all together. We get our word synopsis in English from this. Those gospels generally cover the same timeline of Jesus' life. They don't all include the same things, but they generally cover the same timeline. But John's gospel contains many things that they don't even touch on, and John doesn't talk about a lot of the things that they do touch on. John focuses way more time on Jesus' early ministry, and he is very selective with the events from Jesus' life and ministry that he shares. Because telling us about those specific things are what's going to help him accomplish his goal in writing his book. John has three goals here that he tells us. Number one, he says that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you might trust that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies to Israel. Number two, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, but also the Son of God, that we might believe that Jesus is not a lesser deity or even a mere man, but He is God in the flesh, God the Son come to earth. And then thirdly, that believing you might have life through His name, that we might possess eternal life, our trust in Him. That eternal life, John will explain, is a quality of life that comes more from just an, a mere intellectual agreement with what He says, but it comes from having a relationship with the Lord. So, basically, John's goal is this. John, the son of thunder who Jesus changed into the apostle of love, wants everyone to read his gospel so they can know the same Jesus he knew, the real Jesus, so that Jesus might change their life just like he changed his. Now, how does John propose to achieve that goal? Well, he tells us, but these are written. What are these? What are the these that he mentions? Well, verse 30 tells us, many other signs truly did Jesus did. So, these signs are written that you might believe that you might know Christ. So, so, the word signs here, it either refers to a normal signal that someone gives or a miraculous event which has special meaning. John tells us that his goal is not to tell the entire story of Jesus. He's going to leave a lot out. But his goal is to select certain events from all the things Jesus said or did, events sometimes normal, sometimes miraculous, that will substantiate who Jesus is 
and what we need to do about it. So over the course of John's gospel, he's going to call to the witness stand three types of signs. Number one, we're going to see personal testimonies. We're going to meet people who Jesus changed their life just like he changed John's life. So we're going to meet a guy named Nicodemus. We're going to meet Mary Magdalene. But we're not just going to meet them. We're going to hear their stories. We're going to hear their personal accounts of how Jesus changed their life. And then, in addition to personal testimonies, John records for us eight things that Jesus did that only God can do and eight things Jesus said that only God can legitimately say or claim. So personal testimonies, eight things that Jesus did only God can do, and eight things Jesus said that only God can claim. And those three things, the personal testimonies, the miracles, and the claims, will prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and that we can have eternal life by trusting in Him. Pretty straightforward, right? In light of that, I want to exhort you, I want to challenge you as we study this book. And here it is. I want to challenge you to bring at least one person who doesn't know Jesus to church during our study of John. Because there is no better book to introduce somebody to Jesus. John's whole focus, his whole goal is to show us who Jesus is, to prove it to us through personal testimonies, miracles Jesus did only God can do, and things Jesus said only God can claim. So if you want to know the real Jesus, if, you want, if someone wants to understand what the Bible says about Jesus, not all the opinions out there, this is the book to do it. So that's my encouragement, exhortation, every one of us. If you're visiting, I'm not talking to you, but if this is your home church, invite someone who doesn't know the Lord to come and be introduced to Jesus. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, well, one of the things I like about this church is you don't pressure me every week to give or to do this or to do that. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm just, I'm sensing from the Lord as, as I was studying this book that this is something he would like to do in our church as we study it. That this is a great time to do that. So maybe some of you are thinking, oh, I can't do that. I don't know how to share my faith. Or I don't. Hey, that's okay. You can do this. And here's how. Start by praying every week this. God, give me one person to bring to church so they can be introduced to your son. Just give me one person. Start there. Over the course of this book, give me one person to invite. Give me one person this week to invite and see what doors God will open. This is not about getting more people to come to our church. This is about introducing people to Jesus, about fulfilling John's goal and therefore the Lord's goal since he's the one who inspired John to write it. Amen? So with this in mind, let's go to John 1 and let's start our study. John chapter 1. And we'll do the first five verses this morning. Now, John starts here with a, a kind of like a prologue before he gets into the first testimony, which will be John the Baptist. He starts with this kind of an introduction to who Jesus is. And so he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We start with this familiar phrase that immediately is going to bring something else to your mind, in the beginning. What does that make you think of immediately? Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? John knows that, and he wants us to 
to conjure in our mind that moment, that moment when time, space, and matter came into being by divine creation. He says, in that moment was the Word. The phrase was there means was existing. It's in the imperfect tense, which means something that had already been done in the past, but it's been continually going on for a period of time. John says, when the beginning happened, when time, space, and matter came into being by divine creation, when that moment happened, he said the Word had already been in continual existence. It had already been in existence and had been continuing that way for eternity past. Okay, well, who or what is the Word? Well, this word, word here is that Greek word logos. The logos means a collection of things in the mind that expresses itself in words. One uh, linguist describes it as both the outward form by which the inward thought is expressed and the inward thought itself. So when we say logos, it's more than just words on a page or words that are spoken. It's the thought behind the words that then gives voice to the words. Greek philosophers, they use this word logos to describe the entire realm of, of thought they thought of it as the abstract conception that, that was at the back of everything that's concrete that you and I can see. Another word they used for it is wisdom. It was a thing they sought above all else because they believed wisdom was an actual force, the logos, that antedated all works of creation and then influenced creation afterwards. It was the thing that kind of guided and governed the structure of the universe. Now, you might say, okay, well then why is John using this word? He's not Greek. He's a Hebrew. So why would he use this? He's not a Greek philosopher. Well, the Hebrew philosopher, they had a different word, but they referenced logos and said something similar to it. But they went a step further. You see, the Hebrew philosopher said this, you're right. Where there is a thing, it proves a thought. But a thought requires a thinker. So they didn't see it as an inanimate force, but something more personal. Today, we often use terms to describe the structure we see in our universe. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, nature, this, the course of nature. Others will call it the process of evolution, and, and they'll study it and try to understand the, you know, how this, this driving force of evolution works in our universe. Those are all just different ways of referring to the ancient force that the Greeks sought to know, the logos. Well, John addresses this topic of debate by saying, there is indeed a thought that governs the universe. Wisdom does exist. But that thought comes from a thinker, a person. This is the true logos. This is the answer to all the debates on where everything comes from and why everything functions the way it does. And John's thinker, this creator who is the source of all wisdom, is Jesus. In Revelation 19, 13, we read that his name is the Word of God. You see, John introduces Jesus as the answer to both Jews and Gentiles in their philosophies of trying to understand the structure of the universe. Jesus is the Logos, God expressing himself to us. The thought behind the words, the person behind the thought. For that's what a word is. It's an expression of myself to you. A person could observe you or me from far away. They could even learn some things about us by observing us up close. 
but it's through our communication that someone really learns who we are. And so Jesus is the one who would take that which is eternal, that which is outside of our understanding, time, space, and matter, and He's the one who would reveal it to us by personal communication, by becoming a man, the man that we're going to study in the book of John. John says, He is the thinker whose thoughts resulted in creation. But He didn't stop there. He came close to His creation, and He spoke to us so we could truly understand who He is. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer of this letter echoes John's thoughts. He says in Hebrews 1, 1, God, who at sundry times in many different portions and in diverse manners in many different ways, He spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Well, He has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory. Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. He's the express image of His Father's person, the mere image. And upholding all things by the word of His power, when He by Himself, Jesus, had purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is that one who bridged the gap, became a man. But He was there prior to the beginning. He always was. So, Jesus is, existed prior to creation as the eternal God. John tells us another important thing about Jesus being the eternal God. He says here that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The phrase here was, again, in this eternal pre-creation state, the Word was with God. With means face-to-face towards each other. Jesus was not the Father's sidekick. He was not a lesser deity. He was not someone that the Father created at some point. He was not nearly near or even beside the Father. This preposition with carries the idea of motion towards something with a strong impression that the motion is reciprocated. So it speaks of a plane of equality, not one higher than the other, but of equality and also intimacy, an active union and communion. This is why when you read the Gospels, you repeatedly hear the Father say about Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The fact that we see the Father talking all the time about Jesus being His beloved Son, it's one of the proofs that there has to be a trinity. For God to be loved, there has to be an object of His love. And if Jesus wasn't in existence for as long as the Father was in existence, well, God can't be love. So, The fact that God is love is proof of a trinity. This establishes yet another important truth about Jesus. Jesus is a person distinct from the Father and yet equal to Him, equal to Him. I love what one commentator says, the Word is not a power emanating from God, but a person in the presence of God and turned in loving, inseparable communion toward God and God turned equally toward Him. That's what it means when it says the Word was with God. Now, John's statement does raise an important question. Does this mean Jesus is a second deity with equal standing to the Father? No, not at all. They're in perfect union. Wherever one existed in eternity, there was the other, in perfect harmony and equality. So, John clarifies the significance of this eternal union, the 
of, of Christ and the Father in the last part of the verse. So we don't think of him as a second deity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and now the Word was God. Now, this literally reads in the original language, and God was the Word. Now, you can't translate it that way because God is placed at the beginning of the phrase for emphasis. It's not the subject. So it's, it's meant to read, the Word was God. We would do it this way. We would type it all in caps. We would highlight it or bold it or put emojis before and after it so that you get, this is the word that we're talking about. I said tomorrow, caps. The word was God. J.C. Ryle said their glory is equal, their majesty co-eternal, and yet their Godhead is one. One God, three persons. Jesus is God, John is saying. He is the second member of the Godhead with all the fullness that comes with that. Now, this echoes a truth we learned when we studied 1 John. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, the very end of the book, John makes the statement in 1 John 5, 20, this is the true God and eternal life, referring to Jesus. The Son of God is the true God and eternal life. Now, I do need to bring up that is another translation of the Bible out there that says otherwise. Uh, the New World Translation of the Scriptures used by Jehovah's Witnesses translate the end of this verse, the Word was a God, saying that Jesus is not one with the Father, but He is a lesser created being. As I already explained, it's literally written, and God was the Word. I remember I had a, a witness at my door, and I brought out my interlinear, and I said, there is no A. There's no A. I'm looking at every Greek word here. There's no A. So there's no A. In fact, if, if you little Greek lesson here, there is no Greek word A. Doesn't exist. No such thing. Now, if you talk to a witness who really knows their stuff, their material, they will counter with the argument that, well, the word God in this verse is something called an anarthrous noun. I might be saying, oh no, what is that? What's an anarthrous noun? An anarthrous noun is one that suggests that an A is necessary to make the sentence work. Like, for example, Bob is a dog. If I just say Bob is dog, that doesn't work, you know, grammatically. So we would insert an A there. So that would be an anarthrous noun. So they say, well, the word God here is that. But if that were the case, then the sentence would have to have been written differently in the original language. Because if we say, well, John actually meant a God was the Word. Well, that would make God now the subject of the entire sentence. Whereas, who's been the subject of the sentence up to this point? The Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, you're changing the whole structure of the sentence, which you can't just do. I can't just change a sentence and go, well, dog, dog is a, a dog is Bob. I can't do that. You can't do that to the language. That is mangling language. The definitive article, the word the, in front of word, requires that it be the subject of the sentence. So God can't be in that spot. So rather than being an anarthrous noun, God here, without the the, it emphasizes not the individuality of God the Father or the, the concept of a God, but it 
emphasizes the quality that God has. In other words, John is saying that everything God is, the Word is too. Everything God is, the Word is too. And so when you read the New World Translation, it robs the sentence of the majesty John's trying to give it. This is what John's trying to convey. Hey guys, before creation, Jesus existed. He existed eternally in union and communion with the Father, co-equal and one. And that's true because Jesus is God. Now, when you read it that way, that gives a majestic quality to it. If you read everything there and then at the end you go, because Jesus is a God. John is almost schizophrenic. Jesus is awesome, but not really. <laughs> Jesus is amazing, but just a God. The verse is to be understood the way I read it to you, so that before we get into the testimonies and into the miracles and into the sayings, we have this majestic view of who we're going to learn about. This guy that I walked with for three and a half years, this guy that I still talk to, this guy that's still working in my life, he is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Now, just in case we misunderstood him, John clarifies what he means in verse 2. And he says, not only is Jesus the eternal Son of God, existing prior to creation, existing as a person equal to the Father, and is God Himself, but Jesus is also one with the Father. The same was in the beginning with God. The same means this one, the Word that I've been talking about, Jesus. The one who's the eternal God, He is with God, or literally with the God. Now, based on verse 1, we cannot simply look at this and say, oh, so Jesus was with God. No, what John is saying here is God was with God. Do you understand that? He's not saying Jesus was with God. He's going, God was with God. Jesus, who is God, was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. From all eternity past, God the Son was face to face with God the Father in perfect union and communion. There was never a time when that was not true. Now, when we talk about the idea of the Godhead, the idea of the Trinity, it's perfectly normal to have difficulty wrapping our mind around that idea. One God, three persons. How does that work, Pastor Will? Well, just like I said, one God, three persons. Yes, but three persons mean three gods. No, one God. Well, one God who manifests himself in three ways. No, one God, three persons. Well, then you get three gods. No. I know it's hard. I understand it's difficult. One plus one plus one equals three. But when we understand the way one can be used, I could say I have one bag of apples. Lots of apples, but it's only one bag. I've got a bundle of sticks, one bundle of sticks. In the Old Testament, in the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The word is echad, and it means a compound unity. A compound unity. So one God within the Godhead, three persons. Does that math out correctly? If you change your math a little bit, one plus one plus one equals three, but one times one times one equals one as well. So it does work one way. You just need to change your math a little bit. But even though it's perfectly normal to have difficulty wrapping our minds around it, to deny that the Bible teaches a triune God is to reject John's words here because his words can mean nothing else and that there are at least two members in the Godhead. Now, 
While John is placing an authoritative stamp on Jesus' deity here, this also serves as an introduction to another important truth, because if Jesus and the Father existed before creation in perfect union, well, that means that Jesus had to have participated in creation, right? And so John tells us that next, that Jesus is the Creator. He's not only the eternal Son of God and one with the Father, but He's the Creator God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John expresses it here to us in two ways. First off, the positive. All things, every kind of thing that were made, every kind of thing that came to exist or came into being, it says was made by him. This was not a situation of, hey, dad, can I do the moon type of participation? That wasn't it. Jesus was involved in all the infinite details of all of creation. All things came into being through His creative act, by Him. In Hebrews 1 verse 2, very similar to John's opening here, the writer of Hebrews says that by Him, this is by whom also He made the worlds. The Father made the worlds through the agency of Jesus. Jesus was the agent. Now, to make sure we understand exactly what John is saying, John repeats this truth, but from a different angle, the negative side. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Separate or apart from Jesus was not anything made that was made. Literally, without Jesus came to exist not one of the things that had been made. Can't get any clearer than that. Was it made? Yes, Jesus made it. Now, since there isn't a single detail of creation Jesus wasn't involved in, Jesus cannot be a created entity. He cannot be a created being. He cannot be a lesser deity or an angel or anything else than the eternal creator God, right? That's who he has to be. Now, on a more personal level, there's something cool here. If Jesus was intimately involved in every detail of creation, that means he was intimately involved in your creation. None of you here are a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. None of you here were just kind of the course of how nature happened. Maybe you might be saying to yourself, yeah, but I wasn't supposed to be. Or I didn't didn't come about the right way. Okay. So, Jesus is still the one who was involved in your creation. You think, Bev always reminds me, she goes, you think you have that much control, Will? When I start getting worried about things. And it's such a true point. You really think your mom and dad were the ones who were in control of that situation? You say, I don't know who my dad was. I don't know who this, that, or the other thing. doesn't matter. Jesus did. You're not a mistake. He created you. He created you with intent, with purpose. He's not just standing off and he says, all right, I created everything. Let it go. Nope. We're going to read in a minute that all things are sustained by his power. So he's still intimately involved in every act of creation, which includes you. All members of the Trinity were involved together in creation. In Genesis 1-2, it talks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. But Jesus, He was the agent of creation. And because of that, He has an exalted place above all creation. Look at Colossians 1, chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Colossians 1, verse 16 Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, 
Colossians 1.16, For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. I don't know if John's talking about things you can't see because they're so far down in the sea you can't see them, or if he's talking about the spiritual realm and you know, angels and things like that, and then us. Either way, the idea is they all were made by him. All, by him were all things created. They're in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. It means he's the one who has the preeminence. He's in front. And by him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. I love what A.B. Simpson says about this concept of Jesus being the creator. He says, he is the true head of human life. And apart from him, our being is abnormal and must be miserably lost. Now, this is where some have a hang-up with Jesus. They might say, you know, why should Jesus have this exalted role of being in charge? I mean, just because He made everything? That doesn't seem to be a good qualifier. What about His character? I don't like that, that He, he gets to be in charge. I don't, I don't want Him to be in charge. I, I don't think He's worthy of that role of calling the shots. And some would bring up objections to what they see in Jesus' rule. They would say, why do you let horrible things happen? You, you can't be a good ruler if you let horrible things happen when you could stop them. Or why can't I live the way I want? You're, you're not only not a good ruler, you're, you're a tyrannical ruler. Or why even set standards that people need to live by? You're, you're an arrogant, selfish ruler to make it just one way. Or why have a punishment for rebelling against your rule. You're a, you're a spiteful ruler. What is the answer to these kinds of objections to Christ being in the preeminent role? Well, let's do a thought experiment. Go with me just for a minute. Can any of you or me, can we say or do what it says Jesus did in verse 3? Can we create things, create everything? No. So we have to admit that we're different than Jesus a little bit, right? He can create, I can't, right? You can't. Can anyone here claim to be the eternal God like Jesus is described in verses 1 and 2? Like, have you been with the Father for all of eternity? Are you an eternal being? I mean, you'll live for eternity, but you're not an eternal being. You had a beginning. Jesus didn't. So, we are clearly very different from Jesus, right? Like, we're not in the same category. Can we agree on that? All right, based on John's claims here. So, if we're different, then let's consider the differences between us and Jesus. Let's consider that the only qualification Jesus has, that Jesus has more qualifications than just the fact that He had the power to create. That being the eternal God, that He also has infinite wisdom, intelligence, love, and goodness. Now, if we operate from that foundation, as the Scriptures tell us, Given that we're so different because we don't have infinite wisdom, anybody here have infinite wisdom? I sure don't. Infinite intelligence? Hope you don't think you do. You're clearly showing you lack intelligence if you think that. <laughs> do you have infinite love? Always love everyone all the time without fail? Infinite goodness? No, clearly we are different from the claims that are made about Jesus. So if we operate from, from that foundation that Jesus is like this and we're like this, 
then I, w- I guess I would say is, would it be logical or smart or make sense to assume we're in a position to know what's right or best or good or fair in comparison to Him? I think that's an incorrect assumption. To assume that, well, I, I know better what's right or fair or best or good. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the idea of God gets a carte blanche, you know, carte blanche, just whatever. He's God, end of, end of communication. That, that whatever He does is good because, just because He's God. End of argument, no more questions. I'm not saying that because there are theologians, there are pastors who doctrinally they take that viewpoint, and I would disagree and say that's, that's a lazy approach. I think that's a, not a biblical approach. I don't think the Bible portrays the Lord that way. What I am saying is this. If we understand the differences between us and Jesus, does not the greater burden of proof to decide who is more qualified, doesn't it lie with me? Like, doesn't the greater burden, like, if we're going to, you know, say we're going to critique Jesus, does not the greater burden of proof lie with me, though? Like, because the alternative is, okay, so let's critique Jesus and say he's not worthy. Okay, which one of you is worthy? Which one of you is more worthy? Because the truth is, that's the claim, I'm more worthy, I don't treat people like that. Oh, okay, so you have all knowledge and all wisdom, and you do love perfectly? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, the, the burden of proof, the greater burden of proof is on us, not on Him. If I'm honest with myself, the questions and the accusations I listed earlier operate the thought, from the thought that I'm a, I'm a qualified authority on goodness, fairness, and moral rightness. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm far easier to tear down as an authority on things than Jesus is. Way easier. Like if, if we want to look and say, okay, so why are you qualified? And we, someone sits me down and say, Will, why are you qualified? What, to be the expert and authority on moral goodness, rightness, fairness, all that kind of stuff. Let's take a look at your life, what you've thought, what you've done, how you've acted. That's the part where I go, can I leave? You know, we're going to examine everything your heart's ever thought. We're going to examine everything you've ever done, things nobody knows about. That's the part where I go, can I leave? I really don't think I stand up under that weight. In light of that, since Jesus has qualities that make him superior to me, is it not logical, more logical at least, that he should rule and not me? That we should at least consider his words, his standards, and his plans rather than write them off because I, the clearly less qualified person, disagree with him? That's something to consider. Now, Jesus has another quality that makes him more qualified than me to be in charge, and it's an attribute that enabled him to be the agent of creation. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Everything that came into existence, it received life from an outside source, but Jesus is not the same. He has life in and of himself. Jesus is self-existent. You know, I am alive, but life does not exist in me. I can make something from things that already exist, but I don't have the ability to bring things into existence from nothing. Jesus can because He's self-existent. He has the ability not just to create, but to sustain all that He creates. 
In Hebrews 1.3, it says that all the world is held by his, the word of his power. I can barely hold things together in my own home by the word of my power, let alone just everything that's going on in the world. If I just go up to somebody and go, hey, no, doesn't work. In contrast, Jesus can speak, and it's going to happen. No human being has that qualification. You know, the majority of the world is trying to hold things together right now by the word of its power, but is it working? Ah, oh, no. Jesus, in fact, he predicted that if he didn't come back someday to stop what we're doing, we would destroy ourselves. And so when I hear people critique Jesus' right to rule, or they critique his standards, or they critique his plans, I like to ask questions. For example, when someone says, you know, I would never trust a God that destroyed everyone by a flood, my response is, okay, well, forget about Jesus. How are you doing in life? Should we all just trust you instead or, or someone else than Jesus to run things? Can you name someone? Like, let's say that someone had the capacity to do that. Is there anyone you trust with that power? Not me. Not me. You and I must not be so arrogant that we don't even consider those kind of questions. Conclusions are easy to make, especially when the only person you're consulting is yourself. But good questions, they require giving this subject adequate time and humble thought. And I would suggest to you that those are two qualities most of us don't trend toward, not without direct intent and effort. We don't tend to give spiritual things our time. We certainly don't give it humble thought. We don't tend to give the concept of God our time or humble thought in our nature. We have to purpose to do that, which is why John says what he says next, and that life was the light of men. This life that Jesus has in and of himself is something he gave as a gift to other things, to bring them into existence. And one of those things he brought into existence was mankind. And Jesus wants more than just existence for mankind. He offers us a quality of life. He says that life, it was the light of men. There are two words in the Bible for life, bios and zoe. Bios refers to the physical animation of life, just being alive. But zoe, the word used here, it refers to life as a moral principle, life as a quality rather than just mere existence. You see, Jesus created us, but He didn't just leave us to exist. He offers us a type of existence, one where His eternal and holy joy with the Father is shared with us. And so, His life was the light of men. The word light here, this statement implies that humanity does not have light in and of ourselves. Even though we're alive, we don't have light. In other words, that if He left us to just simply exist, it would leave us in darkness. So, Jesus, from the beginning of creation, He offered this quality of life to humanity, and it illuminated us. There's a way to have this quality of life that I have with my Father and my Father has with me. Now, if you decide to reject that light, you remain in darkness. If you receive it, you experience eternal life, and you enter into that beautiful relationship that the Father has had with the Son and the Son with the Father for all eternity. But here's the truth. Reject it or receive it. Jesus is still the eternal Creator God. He is still the head of all creation, and rejecting Him cannot and will not change that. Look at verse 5. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. 
The word shines here, it means it keeps on giving light. Jesus, this light that he brings, it keeps on giving light throughout all of time. And it keeps on doing it in the darkness. Our world is currently in darkness. It means a condition that arises from the absence of light. This word is used in the Bible to describe our fallen, broken world that has fallen short of its ruler's standards and falls short of the quality of life that he longs to give us. And Jesus in his love keeps on giving light at all times, even though humanity keeps running from it. I don't want your way of life. I'm fine on my own. Let me just be. It's my life. You can do that, but it's not going to stop Jesus. For it says the darkness, King James says comprehended, but apprehended might be a better word. It means to seize hold of, to overpower or gain control of. John says, humanity, you may fight as hard as you want, but it's not going to stop his light. Nothing can overpower or control Jesus. Now, again, there are objections that are made. They say, well, why do we have to accept his light, his way of life? Why can't we just all do as we please? Why do we have to do things his way? I would again ask a question. How has that worked out for us since the fall? In the past 3,400 years, humans have been war-free for only 268. That's sickening when you think about it. And the truth is we're not improving. Depending upon who your source is, there are anywhere between 32 and 110 armed conflicts going on right now in the world. We're not improving. Now, some might object, I understand that, Will, but none of those wars are my fault. Okay. Well, let's take it down to a more personal level. How many people do you know that are truly, truly happy? How many people do you know that have never hurt anyone else and you're confident they never will? And then ask yourself, is that really the kind of eternity you'd like to live in? Even with my inferior intellect and understanding, I can deduce I don't want that kind of life. I don't want that to last forever, and I don't have the ability to fix that mess myself. But here's what John is saying. Jesus does. He does. So as the team comes up to close us out in worship, I want to leave you with a thought or two. This is how John introduces Jesus to us. We're going to look at the life of Jesus, but he introduces him to us in this way, that due to Jesus' eternal, all-powerful, life-giving, and loving nature, he is worth consideration as the one who has the answers and the ability to fix this mess. So, have you considered Jesus' worth? And if not, have you ever asked yourself why you think you are more worthy to trust than him. You might say, well, I've never wiped out the entire world with a flood. True, but neither do you have the capacity to do so. So who knows what you would do if you did? So the right question is that, not to ask, have you flooded the world? It's how have you done with the capacity you do have? Have you loved people around you perfectly? Have you loved everyone around you perfectly? You might say, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm not God. I shouldn't be held to that standard. Ah, so there is a standard then. Perhaps you should ask yourself where that standard came from. Did it come from you? And if it did come from you, you don't have all knowledge, you don't love everybody, you're not perfect. 
So why is your standard a worthy one? What I'm saying this morning is, if you have not seriously considered Jesus' worth, those are the kind of questions I'm posing to you. And I would ask you to please don't settle for easy but insufficient answers. Please consider John's words by giving them time and sincere thought. And if you have considered Jesus' worth, isn't it awesome to know that the one who holds us in his hand and promises that no one will snatch us out of it is the one who has always been and always will be? That he's the one who flung the worlds into existence and yet he cares enough about you and me to bring light and life to us that we might join him and his Father forever? That's a reason to worship and obey, don't you think? Let's all stand. Lord, we do as we close out with song now, I want to consider your worth. Lord, to worship you for your worth because you're the creator God, the person who has always been and always will be God, our creator, our life giver, the unstoppable God. We worship you, Lord, in your majesty. We want to follow you. God, use this book to change our lives. Use this book to give us a clearer vision of you, an understanding of you, that we might follow you more closely and know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.